Hey there Desi crime fans. I'm your host Aryan and I'm Ashwarya and welcome back to part 2 of Kill Cut Eat. If you haven't yet heard part 1, we highly recommend going back to it and listening it first. And if you haven't heard the episodes before that, what the hell are you doing wasting your life? Like with all our episodes, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Desi Crime for regular updates. Up till now, Officer Vinod Pandey, who was the head of communication and intelligence in the region of Noida, has successfully traced Pyle's phone. This is the biggest development in this case yet, where more than 19 people, mostly kids and often girls, have disappeared. <laughs> I would say this is the only development in this case. And you wouldn't be wrong in saying that. A development nonetheless and the phone is traced to this person. Surender Kohli, village Nithari, sector 31, Noida. Let's find out what happens next. This case had stalled for 2 years. What came to be known as the Nithari case finally picked up momentum when it landed on Officer Pandey's desk. Within minutes of receiving that fateful email on 26th December 2006, Noida Corps headed to D5 in Nithari where Pyle's phone was traced. So, Pyle was the call girl who Pandey used to call and Pandey confessed to this, right? Why did Surender Kohli's name pop up on the telecom radar? That is precisely what baffled the cops. Pandey had been the prime suspect due to this as one may call elaborate and scandalous lifestyle up till this point. Kohli on the other hand is described by everyone as this docile and meek little creature that lurks in Pandey's shadows. Another twist to this case was when the cops were informed that it was Pyle's very own father that used to give away his daughter for prostitution, fully aware of what she was doing and where she was going. All these nuances clubbed with the police's stark disinterest and inefficiency in this case from the very beginning slowed all investigations until the email pinged in Officer Pandey's inbox. Kohli was met with a barrage of jeeps with sirens wailing ready to pick him up at D5 in sector 31. At that point there was not much he could do. Even if he wasn't involved in Pyle's disappearance, the police had sufficient evidence to arrest him for theft, and that is exactly what they did. That very day, Kohli, this meek and petite figure, was brought in for interrogation. His character leads the cops to believe that this interrogation is going to go easy. Simple questions, simple answers. But it wasn't. This was going to be the toughest alleged criminal Officer Pandey came across in his years of service. In Pandey's own words, we kept interrogating Kohli till our spirits broke, but he did not break. 
this guy, who everybody describes as shy and whatnot, suddenly turns into this stoic, overly confident individual. The cops were taken aback naturally. It's almost as if they arrested Vansurendra Kohli, but had in custody somebody else. After hours of prodding, scaring, and using interrogation tactics, Surendra Kohli finally gave in. He confessed. He accepted murdering Payal Lal and disposing away her body. But then he didn't stop confessing. Wait, what the hell? Does this man have multiple personality disorder? First, he's this shy and puny figure. Then he's this brick wall of confidence and mystery. Now, all of a sudden, he's this open book. That is a book you wouldn't want to read. Its contents are too gory and all too real. As for personality disorder, while that is worth speculating, you do mention something critical. Psychology. Recalling the interrogation officer, Pandey says he immediately realized there was something psychotic, in his own words, psychotic about Surendra. Something so disturbing that he couldn't wrap his head around it. Kohli now starts telling the cops not only how he disposed her body, but also how he killed her in the first place. In Kohli's own words, he called Payal over to D5 under the guise of his employer Munander Pandey. He says he was infatuated by Payal and fantasized about having sex with her whenever Pandey had her over. On that fateful day, Pandey was out of town and Kohli capitalized on it. It was just both of them in the living room when he tried soliciting Payal for himself. But she refused. He then offered Payal tea and makes it seem like he is going to go boil water. The unsuspecting Payal never thought about looking back. After all, there was nothing fear-worthy about Kohli. But underestimating his primal instincts was her biggest mistake and her last mistake. As she waited for the hot cup of tea, he went behind her and strangled her with her own scarf. He then engaged in what is called in criminal psychology necrophilia or sex with a corpse, a dead body. That dead body was Pyle, a 22-year-old woman. If he could do that to a grown woman, what about children? who are far, far more vulnerable. And most of the disappearances were children, right? Yes, and as the cops realised this, they brought in the missing person flyer that had the photos of all the kids on it. One by one, Kohli identified them. One by one, Kohli revealed the extent of his atrocities in the black hole, the 100-metre stretch in Atari where parents warned their children from going. Over the course of two years, 19 people had gone missing. Rimpa Haldar, Pinky Sarkar, Jyoti Lal, Payal Lal, to name a few. Why 19? Why so many? Why girls? Why children? These are questions that baffle the cops. But they wish they hadn't asked them. What follows is an extract of Kohli's own confession, video recorded by the district magistrate. 
We were able to find a clip of it in which Kohli details how he murdered Rimpa Haldar, a 14-year-old kid. First, we will play Kohli's confession in Kohli's own words. Yes, it's his audio, followed by a translation in English for you listeners. Be warned, the following confession is chilling. बाद में पता चला पुलिस के जरिए इसका नाम डिम्पा है तो इसको मैंने काम के लिए बुला लिया अंदर और जैसे ये उधर को देख रही थी मैंने पीछे से इसी के सुनने से इसका गला दबा करके और इसको बेहोश कर दिया उसके बाद इसके साथ सेक्स करने का कोशिश किया और सेक्स करने का कोशिश किया थोड़ी देर सेक्स करने की कोशिश करने के बाद उसके बाद जब सेक्स नहीं हो पाया मेरे से मैंने गला दबा करके इसको मार दिया उसके थ्रू उसके बाद फिर मैंने उसको ऊपर बाथरूम में लेकर चला गया ऊपर बाथरूम में ले जा करके नीचे आया किचन में नीचे किचन में से आकर के चाकू लेके गया और इसको मैंने उसी टाइम तुरंत काट करके और इसका मैंने बाजू और ये सीने का पीस भी खाया था अच्छा हाँ जी जो मैंने घर में ही मतलब किचन में बनाया था कोहली सेज खोट इन जनवरी और फेबरी ऑफ टू थाउजेंड फोर आई वॉज स्टैंडिंग आउटसाइड डी फाइव वेन अ गर्ल वॉज कमिंग टूवर्ड सेक्टर थर्टी वन फ्रॉम निठारी Later I was told her name was Rimpa Haldar. I lured her in telling her I have candy for her. As she came in I went behind her and strangled her with her own scarf. After that I tried to have sex with her but wasn't able to. So then I killed her with my own hands. The interrogator asks why did you kill her? I don't know. There was just this pressure that I had to kill her. There was something within me and I just had to. Then I took her dead body to the bathroom upstairs and I got a knife from the kitchen. After that, I cut a piece of her arm and her left breast which I cooked in the kitchen. Then I ate her breast. Oh my goodness. <laughs> this is the most graphic description I have ever read. More chilling than the confession is the calm with which he says it. You are bound to get goosebumps if you listen to him make these wild, disturbing, insane confessions so nonchalantly. I mean that there is something wrong, you know it. You you just know that there is something wrong. It was in fact when I was going through these recordings from the confession, I stumbled across this one bit from Coley's confession. देखते देखते मतलब मेरे मन में गलत भावनाएं आने लग गई गलत गलत भावनाएं क्या आई मेरे मन में ऐसी आई जैसे मतलब मैं किसी ये जैसे आते मतलब किसी को मारूं काटूं खाऊं इस तरह की गलत भावनाएं मेरे मन में आने लगी मारूं काटूं खाऊं और इन इंग्लिश किल कट ईट द नेम ऑफ दिस एपिसोड इज ब्रॉट टू यू बाय कोहली हिमसेल्फ बट ऑल इज वेल व्हेन इट कम्स टू द कन्फेशन बट इन द कोर्ट ऑफ लॉ You need more. You need hard evidence. Kohli might go back on his confession the moment he lawyers up, so it was of utmost importance and utmost urgency to find evidence and find it quick. He revealed that Pyle's clothes are kept in the attic of D5. A scarf with which he strangled Pyle was one of those clothing items. Her dad Nandlal was called by the cops to verify this and it was indeed Pyle's belongings. The question remained where in the hell and how in the hell did Kohli manage to dispose not one 
not two, but 19 dead bodies over two years with no one finding out. But wait, technically people did find bodies, right? Do you guys remember when we mentioned that those children were playing cricket and found what looked like the remains of a hand wrapped in plastic? That was people finding bodies. That is precisely where Kohli reveals he dug the heads of all his victims. The heads of all his victims separated from the body in an alleyway which was earlier a gutter right behind house number D5. He says he wrapped the heads in plastic bags and threw them with the trash, much like the hand that was found two years back wrapped in plastic. Imagine if the authorities hadn't thrown that away, hadn't thrown legitimate evidence to make their life easy, how many actual lives would have been saved? Evidence isn't only in the form of bones and murder weapons. Over the course of this investigation, all sorts of psychological evidences were gathered on Kohli. He was subjected to multiple polygraph tests, a truth serum narco test, and my personal favourite, psychoanalysis. Evaluating a patient's mind through multiple tests to determine psychopathy. After hours upon hours upon days of examination, it was ruled that Kohli was not a psychopath. I know, it doesn't make much sense, didn't make much sense to me either, comes off as a clear psychopath. But there is an alternative explanation. Kohli's victims started with children from the age range of 5 to 7, then gradually increased to adolescents and then adults and then married women. In all these cases, he was trying to experiment his competence and test the limit of his urges. Kohli started developing fantasies ever since he started working at Pandair's house due to the environment, remember, that, that's key. The environment at Pandair, the environment at D5 is key. One where call girls frequented and partying was commonplace. These fantasies, clubbed with his loneliness, led to moments where Kohli got these impulses. He wasn't a psychopath. He, however, was a victim of his urges and his circumstances. 26th December of 2006, Kohli was taken in custody and by 29th, all hell broke loose. D5 in Sector 31 was surrounded by thousands upon thousands of villagers from Natari. It was sheer pandemonium and chaos. The anger was there and so was the fear. The parents of all those children were present in front of the house that allegedly swallowed their children. Among them were Pinky's parents, Jatin and Bandana Sarkar. When they reached D5, they spotted yellow clothes in the evidence pile collected by the police. And Bandana fainted when she sees them. She knew whose they were. Her daughters. Pinky wore yellow clothes the day she disappeared. Pinky worked as domestic help in Ashwarya's best friend's house. So we reached out to them to tell us a bit about Pinky. And what was the 29th of December actually like? So this happened in 2006 when I was six years old. Pinky Didi used to work for us and so did her mother. Pinky Didi was quite young. She was around 14, 15, I guess at the time. And right before everything happened, she, she left. 
and what actually happened was that she got pregnant and she had a child out of wedlock so her parents either got her married or she eloped one of the two i don't remember but basically she left and then we didn't see her we didn't hear from her but one day her parents came to us saying that you know pinky didi they haven't heard from pinky didi either and that she's been missing and they don't know where she is and right when this happened when they came to us was when um there was a lo- lot of media coverage surrounding this issue and there would be like long queues of just media trucks outside our house just like hounding people and asking them questions and that's when they found pinky didi's bones or her body her corpse and it was her remains that actually led to the arrest that actually had the most um concrete evidence and like implicative evidence so to speak as if this case isn't haunting enough in itself the fact that i know someone who knew one of the victims just makes it so much worse i have read so much about this case i'm not even lying i've had nightmares that i wouldn't want to revisit and personal touches like these are what enhance those experiences a central theme in these nightmares that i've been having recurrently are the next set of evidences the police stumble across you remember how kohli said he beheads his victims well the police found them 19 skulls were dug from behind d5 19 skulls some which still had hair on them skulls small enough that you could tell that once upon a time many years ago that was a child and unfortunately there are pictures of these findings available in police summons that we were able to find while you can find them on our twitter and instagram just know that you have been warned the flow of evidence doesn't stop there more clothes more bones more knives more bodies were discovered in the days to come the magnitude of noida police's failure was apparent to the world netari the small village ridden with slums in the middle of noida became headlines around the world action had to be taken noida police had made a mockery of itself and so within 2 weeks of this investigation exploding on january 9th 2007 the Nitari case was transferred to the Central Bureau of Investigation or CBI if this case wasn't twisted enough for you already there are more twists in all this hustle and bustle around surendra kohli where is munender pandey the multimillionaire businessman who owned house number d5 who was the actual owner of the place where all of this was going down well he was everywhere and nowhere his role in the serial killings and cannibalism is still questioned till date there are two sides to the story one is cbi's and the other is khalid khan's lawyer of the parents of the missing children both sides have theories that have some merit to them so i will present facts you the listeners can decide which story you prefer mind you Both sides are attested by witnesses and evidence which is why I didn't choose one over the other. They're both equally corroborated and I assume equally likely. 
Pandare's role in the Nitari case is first apparent when the CBI finds that the Noida police has been corrupt. <laughs> While it is not surprising that the police engaged in some extent of corruption, what is surprising is that it engaged in every possible extent of corruption. So much so that the cops involved in it were fired when the Nitari case was taken over by the CBI. In the previous episode, I mentioned Sub-Inspector Simarjeet Kaur, who was in charge of the Nitari Chowki in 2006, right? Well, when these disappearances were initially brought to her by the parents, she dismissed them by calling those parents' names and mocking the victims for being Bengali. The fact is that that very same Simarjeet Kaur and the officers under her had all along been hand-in-glove with Muninder Singh Pandey. Investigations by the CBI after it took over the case revealed that even when the investigation was handed to a senior officer after media reports started coming out in August 2006, nearly six months back, Kaur was in constant touch with Pandair. Did she do this out of sympathy for Pandair and Kohli? Of course not. Money. Money talks. And it talked all too loudly when it came to Simarjeet Kaur. Pandair paid Kaur a bribe of Rs. 1,70,000. According to the CBI, Inspector Kaur tried her best to prevent the victims from pursuing the case. She went to the villages of the victims and bullied their relatives to take back the police complaints, all while her travels to these obscure villages around India were funded by, you guessed whom, Pandair. Pandair also funded Kaur's travel to the Allahabad High Court, where she had filed a petition on his behalf to quash the FIR against him. That is not it. The tale of corruption continues. A sting operation further revealed that other officers, including Officer Dinesh Yadav, who had been handed over the investigation after Simarjeet Kaur, also colluded with Pandair and tried to help him escape. Dinesh Yadav, for all of you who don't know, is the same cop who botched up the Arushi Talwar case. If you have seen the movie Talwar, he's the same cop who devised the honour-killing theory to avoid doing sincere police work. I know I keep coming back to this, but imagine if any of these higher-level cops, any one of them, did their work, how many lives would have actually been saved? Well... All these cops were fired once CBI took over. And from that point, genuine progress was made. Aryan, to be honest, I was prepared for some level of corruption in this case from the beginning. This, however, is unbelievable. Not only does it show that Noida police was blatantly complicit, it also shows that Pandeir had a hand in all of this. Well, while Khalid Khan, the lawyer, might agree with you, the CBI wouldn't. And this is where the two different sides to Pandair start. Up until now, whatever the CBI has deduced in terms of corruption is agreed by both the parties, the prosecution as well as the defence. Where the CBI differs from Khalid Khan is that it gives Pandair a clean chit. And I know, Ashwara, you find that hard to believe. Yes. But just bear with me or bear with the CBI for just a second. While it was unquestionable that Pandair had bribed Noida police, the CBI was able to find sufficient evidence to prove innocence by alibi. 
What this means is that the CBI believed they had sufficient evidence to show that Pander had nothing to do with the murders, that he had an alibi. And Pander's alibi was that whenever these gruesome and horrid killings took place, he was either out of his house, out of the city, or at times even outside the country. CBI and Pander's lawyers proved this through call logs, SIM location, witnesses, and even Pander's passport for when he travelled to Australia and Canada. Thus a trend emerged. Whenever a killing took place, Kohli did so behind Pander's back. And there was quite a bit of evidence to back this theory. The media didn't care though. Pander had already been painted a demon by the masses, for the masses, and no amount of evidence could vindicate him in the public's eye. The public's hate for Pander grew so strong that every time he visited the court, despite police protection, mobs managed to beat him black and blue. But Aryan, that still doesn't explain the endless bribery which has been proven. Why would he do all of that? I'm on your team. I, I tend to agree with you. But the CBI's argument was that he did so in order to hide the prostitution racket, the one which involved him and Pyle and his dad soliciting Pyle for sexual exploitation. That prostitution racket, so to say, which he had partaken in, that is something he was trying to get off his shoulders. It was more to save his name in the public eye so that he doesn't come off as a loose character, cheating on his wife kind of guy. Well... Not that, but in the public eye, he did come off as the demonic, child-eating kind of guy. But that was essentially what CBI argued is in its charge sheet, where it did not convict Pander for murder. All it did was convict Pander for unlawful prostitution, which is hardly anything compared to 19 charges of murder. I know, I know, you, the listeners, want to know the other side. You want to know Khalid Khan's version because even you suspect Pander was involved. As do I. Well, here goes the other side of the Nitari case. An even darker and more sinister side, if one could ever exist. I have always mentioned that Pinky's case was really important. And this is where the importance shines. Pinky Sarkar was a 20-year-old victim of Kohli. Her father, Jatin Sarkar, was one of the most active pursuants in the initial stages during 2006 when the police wasn't even doing anything. He suspected Pander from the very beginning and was loud in his beliefs before anything went down, before the media reports, before CBI got into this. On 26 December 2006, when Officer Pandey received that fateful email and the cops went to D5, they called Jatin Sarkar to witness this. He was the only non-policeman present in D5 that day. According to this version of the story, Pandey, Muninder Pandey, pleaded guilty in front of the cops and confessed to his role. He begged on his feet for forgiveness. Not only a verbal confession, but both Kohli and Pander signed a written confession in front of Jatin Sarkar that very day. Jatin knew right there and then that that written confession was key, was central to this case, 
and was central to getting justice for his daughter. With the help of a cop who was his friend, Jatin made a copy of it, unknown to anybody else. Bandana, Pinky's mother, recalls how frightened Jatin was when he came home that day. She remembers him giving her those pages for safekeeping. While neither the police nor CBI knew Sarkar had a copy of the case diary, they were aware he was an eyewitness to Pandey's alleged confessional statement. Anil Haldar, father of Rimpa Haldar, the first known victim of Kohli, was a close friend and a neighbour of the Sarkars at the time. According to him, Jatin was visited by people claiming to be CBI and police officers. The problem was that none wore any uniform or badge and so no one could ever identify who they actually were. A couple visited early in the morning, then three to four people visited around noon, then another set of people visited within two hours. It went on like that for months and that is traumatising. They threatened him and his family with death all the time. At one point, he stopped working and stayed at home to keep his family safe. This was when the beating started. The Sarkars were visited by quote-unquote scary men, according to Bandana, between midnight and 2am, and Jatin was thrashed every night by them. He was beat black and blue right outside his house. He was told to keep his mouth shut accept money and withdraw the case or face death. On many occasions, Anil Haldar too was dragged into Sarkar's house and they were both beaten up. Sometimes they used to tie us up together and hit us with sticks on our backs, says Anil. Months of these visits and beatings continued and everybody told Jatin not to leave the city for his own safety. But after months of living in fear, after months of living in fear of men coming and beating and scaring him with death and his family in jeopardy, Chatan decided to go back to his hometown in West Bengal for Durga Puja. Even there he received threatening calls. It's almost as if these calls followed him like his own shadow. Chatan did go to his village for Durga Puja. But he never came back. On September 1st, 2007, Jatin Sarkar's body was found floating in the river by fishermen. The post-mortem concluded that he drowned. Guys, Jatin was a swimmer who took part in many competitions and was known for his capabilities of swimming. There is no way in hell he just drowned. His body was bruised and his head had a red mark. But no, 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 no. The autopsy said he drowned. So he did. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the other side of the story. While we can prefer one story over the other, the Allahabad High Court had a decision to make. Based on CBI's charge sheet, the court had to award both Muninder and Kohli sentences. CBI refused to use the case diary of which Jatin made a copy as proof. That meant, as per CBI's charge sheet, only Kohli was responsible for all the crimes. The CBI charge sheet was made public a few days before the High Court verdict, and the public was so sure that Pandair would be let go, because there were no big accusations against Pandair. 
However, a last-minute twist changed the outcome of the judgment. The judge of the Allahabad High Court allowed Jatin Sarkar's copy of the confession to be administered as valid evidence. Khalid Khan finally got what he wanted and hoped that justice would prevail as per his understanding of the case, as per his story of the case. The judge also refused the CBI's assertion that Kohli committed all these heinous atrocities and Pandeir had no idea about it. The court simply rejected the idea that Pandeir was living in oblivion while these many crimes, 19 murders, took place in his own bungalow. With that as the premise, in a turn of events, the Allahabad High Court rejected the CBI charge sheet and found both Pandeir and Kohli guilty of the Nithari mass murders of 19 people, mostly kids, often girls. Their punishment? Hanging until death. Something their victims would have gladly chosen over being killed, cut and eaten. <laughs>